Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So we are in the process of a series of teachings. Uh, the series is titled Wrecking Religion. Um, the intent of this series is to try to see how many of you still want to be members here after I'm done. Just kidding. Uh, the, uh, the intent of the series is to, um, to examine things that have either subtly or overtly crept its way into the doctrine of what we would consider Orthodox Christian faith and to reestablish an idea of what the Bible really says, what we really need to believe as Christians, and ultimately the point being who God really is. If our theology of God is wrong, the way we see him will be wrong. The way we present him to the world will be wrong. And ultimately, we know that through the scripture, we find God is creating and establishing a just and worshiping society. Christ. So, um, uh, we're going to start tonight with the creed. I'm not going to give the, uh, the intro or disclaimer to the creed because we've been doing this several weeks in a row. This is the, uh, Jesus said this is the Apostles' Creed. This is what you need to know. This is, if you are an Orthodox Christian... This is what brings us all together. This is the only thing that you have to conform to or align to to be considered an Orthodox Christian. So let's repeat this together as we pray. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead and rose, or excuse me, on the third day he rose again. He, I believe in, excuse me, he ascended into heaven and is seated. I thought for a moment that doesn't look right. <clears throat> Let's start at the top. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's what it takes. So if you say you're a Christian, that's what it means. And um, everything else is detail. We good? All right. Um, Dan, would you mind being 
say time with God. We shouldn't be forced. We only have three scriptures on our sheet we're going to look at tonight, but I have, I have 11 pages of notes. So, take that for what it is. Um, the topic tonight is, it's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. Now, uh, some of you might recognize that line from an R.E.M. song. Um, it's, it's the same, uh, same song, thank you, um, that, that if you've heard it, you know it because it, that's the only line of the song you can understand. Everything else is really fast. Everything else is, is him rattling off history, and I don't know any other words to that song other than the chorus. It's the end of the world as we know it, my dear. And I want to clarify something. I, I was a little bit, um, uh, kind of, you know how that weird doubt thing creeps into your mind. After, um, after Britt and I discussed and, and, and shared this on, on Facebook and, and made this great, and Instagram and made this great thread, I, I, in my back of my mind, I begin to doubt myself. And I thought, you know what? I want to be careful because there's an, that can, if not explained, cast a shadow of arrogance. I feel fine, meaning I'm good. You, on the other hand, so I want to be clear. The reason that we can say it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, is quite simply because the the idea that we have within our eschatological view or our view of the end of the world is absolutely non-biblical. So. I can say I feel fine, not because I've read the end of the book and the other guy goes to hell and I go to heaven. I can say I feel fine because God's end goal is always restoration. So I'd like to start with that. Now, as we get into this, uh, Eli, if you'd show them, this is more than likely what you have seen in the past if you come to a teaching about the book of Revelation. How many have seen things like this in church? Charts and graphs, right? Charts and graphs about what's going to happen. You've got the fields, and, and that's, uh, that's not the Cousins Club to the Dolphins in Miami. This is all of the seals that you find, the seven seals in Revelation. If you look at the pictures, it's hard to see on the wall, but it's something like the Lord of the Rings uh, happening here. It lines this out. Another one that I was going to put up that I decided not to is, um, is something similar, but this one actually goes further. This takes the whole eschatological view from Revelation and says, this is what it looks like, and it breaks it into what's age looking. And this is a concept that most of you believe if you were raised like me, but don't know that maybe you believe it by name. And it's a, it's a theology called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is where it says what age you're living in. And I'm not talking about the age of Aquarius either. That's a whole other thing. Uh, when, if you look at, <laughs> Bill, you explain that joke later. Uh, all right, Eli, you can put the other, the other slide back up. So it, most of the charts and graphs that I saw as a kid, and, and you're good to go for a little while after that, um, uh, were, were things that said what age we're living in. So we've got this age. Well, right now, most people would say we're in the age of grace. Then we're going to be in the age, depending on if you believe post-rapture, uh, um, uh, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all of that stuff. The thing that's very interesting, dispensationalism is not biblical. 
dispensationalism is just absolutely not biblical. Dispensationalism is something that um, didn't actually even happen as a theology until the mid-1800s. So, so in the scope of the last 2,000 years of the church, it's really, really, really new. And yet, because it's all we've ever known, So let's read and establish the context as we start tonight. It's the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read how it starts. Because we can't just get faith. I can't get faith in maybe the Lord of the Rings if they say, well, the best faith you saw was her again. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave you to show his servants what must soon take place. Notice the soon. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John to testify to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart that which is written therein. Because the time is near. So, this is the context. It's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. Little has captured the imagination of the world and the church as much as the final book of biblical canon. I remember from my earliest days being somewhat fascinated with this biblical text. Frequently as a child, while sitting in church, I would find my mind wondering more often than not. Not sure that that had anything to do with that teaching. Um, But uh, I was only allowed to bring one toy, and it had to fit in my pocket. I think Billy Graham's got this one, too. But, but apparently there was a rule that, that most uh, parents prescribed to, which was you could, your kids could bring a toy to church, but A, it was only one, and B, it had to fit in your pocket. And so uh, when I tired of playing with my little truck that could fit in my pocket, I would uh, open the Bible when I would get bored, and rare, uh, rarely would I not go to the end and look at the book of Revelation. I began to revel in its images of battles and lions and beasts and dragons and demons and angels. But to be honest, in my life, I've never really had the desire to understand Revelation. I think it was primarily due to the fact that I had no interest in what people like Terry Stone, John Hosey, Hal Lindsey, and many others would describe about the historical Bible. I remember thinking, if that is what Revelation is, I don't really care to spend time there. And to be honest, I thought if it has to do with the end of the world, rather than worry about understanding it, I'll just try to do everything else in the Bible leading up to it, and everything will work out fine. Have you ever kind of taken that stance? It's like, well, I don't understand what's in there, and I have no idea what those guys are talking about. So I'll just, if it's at the end, I'll just worry about everything leading up to it, and then all roads lead to Rome. Right? It'll work out. Um, But tonight, I'd like to begin with what will likely be a two- or possibly three-part series on the book of Revelation. You see, getting our eschatological view right, our eschatology right, is actually very, very important. The Bible, in its entirety, is telling us a story. And if we try to look at it piecemeal or with a twisted lens, the story itself will pass us by. The story of the Bible is this. We live in a good world created by a good God, but it is a world gone wrong. How does God save the world? 
chapter 2, from the beginning until the end, that's the story. Another way to say that is this, the story of the Bible and the story of humanity is love saves the world. That's the story of the Bible. Love saves the world. The whole journey of the Bible is a trajectory towards justice that is God setting the world right through his son, Jesus. And the eschatological vision that the Bible presents is the answer to our greatest prayer. The king, uh, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let me say that again. The entire Bible is a trajectory towards justice which is God setting the world right. And the story of the Bible is the answer to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. That is the story of the Bible. How does God save the world? And within that idea, the last two chapters, at the very end of the Bible, we're not going to look at this in detail tonight, the very end of the Bible, we are shown a prophetic extravagant picture of the arrival of the kingdom on the earth, the new Jerusalem, because this is the goal of the journey. The goal of the journey or the story is always his kingdom come and Christ as king. That's the goal. Revelation is by far the most misunderstood book of the Bible. And tonight, I'd like to spend a little time simply reframing the way we see it. Many areas of my theology have matured or developed. I've added nuance and detail. My eschatology, however, is the only area I would say I've completely changed. I've changed because I absolutely had to. I was blatantly uninformed and wrong. Whether we knew it or not, we didn't know what we knew. We only knew what we were told. And I don't like to use language like wrong very often. If you know me very well, you know that I try to avoid language like that. But there is some things where we are just wrong. My eschatology is maybe the wrongest I've ever been. The word eschatology, it's that, it's that word messages. It just means the things at the end, what God does with the world. My view of that was the most wrong of anything. And it didn't need detail and nuance. It needed a reputation. It absolutely needed a reputation. Whether we know it or not, whether we know it, need it or not, the fundamentalist evangelical eschatology that we have been handed has been primarily based from two things. A book written in the 1970s by a man named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. If you've been around, does anybody know that book? Has anybody ever heard that name before? Oh yeah. The largest selling nonfiction, I would dispute the genre, Fiction book of the 70s, 300 million copies sold. It focused on a supercomputer in Brussels that is 
to be overwhelmed by the thing that gave me my pocket. How that's what the beast of Revelation was. You've read the book. That's what it was. The beast was a, a name of the supercomputer in Brussels. Now, I'm, I mean, I'm not making this up. This is what they actually, they actually taught. People swallowed this absolutely whole. That the supercomputer in Brussels was called the beast. The beast was the thing that was going to indoctrinate 666, cause a world system to happen. And it was all about um, uh, uh, who the mark of the beast was, who was the antichrist at that point. And you've got all kinds of stuff that it leads into. People like Gorbachev with his you know, birthmark on his head. So clearly he had some stuff going on. Henry Kissinger was at one point very, very notoriously accused of being the Antichrist. And then it's moved on down the line. It usually every couple of years ends up being the Pope anyway, by most of our opinion. So we were handed this eschatological view. The second thing that has been the most influential, whether you know it or not, whether you love the Lord or not, whether you're saved or not, I'm talking about unsaved people. The second thing that's the most impactful to how we view the end is a series called Left Behind. Whether you know it or not, whether you've read it or not, whether you whether you even know it by name, that thing has impacted, distorted, and done more damage to a biblical view of the end than anything, in my opinion, in the last 2,000 years. When we look at the, uh, oh, I have to mention, the other thing worth noting is a little movie series called The Thief in the Night. Has anybody ever heard of The Thief in the Night series? We watched the, we, we showed them to kids when they were like eight. You know, because the best thing to tell an eight-year-old is that their parents are going to be raptured, and not only are they going to have to be here, but they're going to get these boils and probably your head chopped off. That's great. That means if you make it to heaven, you get your head chopped off. So, you know, it's like, hey, do you really love Jesus? Hope you don't mind getting a head shorter. So that idea, those three things framed American eschatological views. This stuff is deeply ingrained within us, whether we know it or not. And this is, for me, where about three years ago, a, a um, what I would consider the most prominent and powerful um, 21st century theologian uh, for the New Testament, N.T. Wright, has proved to be absolutely incredible. In, in books like um, Surprised by Hope, if, if you've not read it, you should read it because it will absolutely save you for a loop by actually showing you what the Bible says about things and how much of this stuff has crept into our understanding. But in it, what's happened to me over the last few years is I didn't realize how deep this stuff was in me. And it was it had its, its tentacles in all of these little areas and crevices of how I saw God and how I saw the end and how I saw other people and who was in and who was out and who was going to burn and who was going to be left behind. And it was absolutely the fuel source for evangelism by So N.T. Wright, for me, was absolutely liberating. It broke the bondage of what I didn't, I didn't realize was really there. In many ways, it was an exorcism. 
I mean, it's like one of those movies where you see somebody now and it's like, identify yourself, left behind. You know, that spirit had to get out. You know, that spirit had to go. And N.T. Wright performs an exorcism and has on many, many people as it's become redefined. You know, that kind of thing is deep in us. So the three goals tonight is that I would like to establish is number one, what are we reading when we read Revelation? How do we read it? And why is it important? This book has absolutely always been controversial. This book is one of the I'm talking about left behind is what the next one's going to be. I'm talking about that book that's coming. <clears throat> this book actually, and it's funny to me because this should be more intimidating to me than Hell Week, but this is just fun. This is Hell Week is kind of intimidating. This is just fun because it's so blatantly obvious. The book of Revelation has always been controversial. In fact, Revelation was the most contested book to be accepted into biblical canon. There's two primary reasons for that. Number one is the obvious. It was the most difficult to understand. Number two, it was also one of the only two books accepted into biblical canon that we didn't know who the author was. The other is the book of Hebrews. There is not an agreed upon idea of who the author of the book of Revelation is. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. What you find is that for that reason, it's the last book accepted into biblical canon. And it was not accepted into biblical canon until the fourth century. It was written midway through the first century. So it was a long time before we said, yeah, this, this is acceptable and from God. One of the other reasons was because of the style it was written in, and we'll discuss what that means. It was so frustrating to Martin Luther. In fact, you know who Martin Luther was? We just celebrated the Protestant Reformation. If you're a Protestant, if you're, let me take a quiz. If you're a Christian and not a Catholic, you're a Protestant. If you're a Protestant, Martin Luther prayed with them. Martin Luther was so frustrated by the book of Revelation that he actually wanted to take it out or remove it from biblical canon when they formed Protestantism. Here's what Martin Luther had to say about it. This book is neither apostolic or prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. It is said that you will be blessed to keep what is in this book, and yet no one knows what that is to say the least of what you're supposed to do with it, Christ is neither taught or known in it. Now, just calm down a little bit here, Martin. Take a chill pill, Martin. But that's how controversial and frustrating this book has been for a long, long time. Martin Luther felt this way until he decided that he could use it to say the Pope was the Antichrist. And then the Pope returned the favor, said Martin Luther was the Antichrist. You study your history. It's amazing to me how much you don't want anything to do with it, and it's all of a sudden like, oh, wait a minute, that guy with the hats looks like this guy in Revelation. He's riding around on that big dragon. Apparently it was a Pope-mobile. <clears throat> Revelation was written near the end of the first century by a man named John. It is agreed upon by most, if not all, scholars that this was not the apostle or the disciple John. This was not John the son of Zebedee. This is why we actually call it John the Revelator. You ever heard anybody talk about John the Revelator? In fact, John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. There was a song that says that. The, uh, the John the 
Revelator, John the Divine, or John of Patmos, was the name given to the author who wrote Revelation, and it was not the guy who authored Matthew. It is not the guy that wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters in the epistles of John. What you actually find is that this guy was more than likely either a pastor over the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now considered Turkey, that you see referenced in, the, in chapters 2 and 3 of, of Revelation, or he was a prophet, maybe like a traveling prophet that was familiar with these places. But everybody agrees upon it was not the guy who laid his head on Jesus' chest in the Gospels. What you find is either way, at some point, regardless of who this guy was, keep in your mind John is as common of a name in as it is Matthew. So just because it's the word John, you go, oh yeah, I'm John. I'm John. Who? Oh yeah, John. Either way, regardless of whether he was a pastor or a prophet or just a guy, he somehow ran afoul of the local Roman authorities. And he's placed in political exile on the Isle of Patmos. That's his name, John of Patmos. And while on this island, he brings this masterpiece that is chosen to close the canon of Scripture. It was during the reign of the emperor, the Roman emperor, Domitian, but it seems to be set during the violent reign of Caesar Nero. Most of you probably in some way, shape, or form in your life heard of Nero. It was Nero who slaughtered Christians and persecuted them throughout Rome. It was Nero who wanted and made famous um, the, the Roman Colosseum where Christians were tortured and killed. It was Nero who crucified, or excuse me, who martyred and killed both Peter and Paul. Nero hated Christians. And it seems that most of the writer, John the Revelator's vision of what's happening was set during the time period of Caesar Nero, even though he was in the next generation about 30 years later during Domitian, which was a very peaceful time. I mean, they didn't get any better, did they? Nero, this, this cataclysmic uh, scene that John frames this around is set during the events of Nero's persecution, a great plague that ravaged the entire Roman Empire, the economic crisis that was generated by the crop failure in Egypt, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, how many of you have heard the name Vesuvius, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that they, the people felt like was an act of the gods, and most significantly the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple, which Jesus had foretold and connected with the coming of the kingdom of God. So all of those things happened during Caesar Nero's um, reign of terror. And it's during that framework that John pens Revelation. It's with those real events in mind that he writes Revelation. So in Revelation, John gives a theatric and prophetic retelling of those events. It is not a revelation of future events. Although it does show a pattern that will prove itself throughout time, there are glimpses of God's intent for creation in it, like you find at the end of Revelation. But it certainly would make no sense for John to write a letter to real churches in Asia Minor and say, I would like to encourage you by sharing with you some things that are going to happen 2,000 years after you're dead. Does that make a lot of sense 
write a letter to somebody and say, hey, I want to encourage you and tell you some things that are going to happen that are completely irrelevant to you. But most importantly, and hear this, Revelation is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. Revelation is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. Revelation is a creative and daring proclamation that Jesus Christ and not Julius Caesar or any other Caesar is Lord and the emperor of the earth. It was a bold and daring declaration that cost John his life. Revelation is not about future events. Revelation is written by John in the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature, which at the time was very, very common. If you have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were produced by the Essene community during the Desert Fathers, if you've ever heard of Dead Sea Scrolls, they didn't make it into biblical canon, but uh, the Book of Enoch is found there, the War Scrolls are found there. They're written in a genre of writing called the uh, apocalyptic literature. Now, Jewish apocalyptic literature is really interesting because it uses a very um, um, drastic imagery. It uses things that are shocking in nature to provide a backdrop to get people's attention. John pairs this beautifully as a writer with Roman Greco theater writing. So just like today, let me, let me back up here. This may be the most difficult part for If you get this, we'll be good for the rest of the night. Just like today, we have genres of writing. Some of you love mystery. Some of you love um, um, uh, drama. Some of you love uh, comedy. Whatever it is that might be a genre. There were genres at that time as well. Because Revelation is written so far after everything else in the Bible, and because of the nature of what it's writing, and because of the nature of the fact that God is giving a prophetic critique to the ruling empire and superpower of the age, he knows better than to do it in overt fashion. So he does it in a form, a writing genre and fashion that is... um, that is very um, genre-specific to being it in this apocalyptic literature fashion. Here's the really big kicker to all of this. Western Protestant Christians are the only ones that didn't know this. The rest of the world, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, everybody else who's Christian, let me just say that, all along understood. I was talking with a Catholic the other day. I love my Catholic friends. I love my Catholic friends. It's so cool. I was talking with a Catholic the other day, and I said, what do you think about the book of Revelation? And um, and he said, well, it's, it's fine. It's great as long as you understand it's written in the apocalyptic genre of Jewish literature. Here's the kicker. John Holtby didn't tell you that. Hal Lindsey didn't tell you that. There's folk 
Christians come future events in the beast. Then they come forward with things like 1989 uh, reasons he's coming back in 1989. But the whole, everybody else in the world has known for years that this is not a future event book. This is a book that is theatrical, and this is a book that is apocalyptic in nature. So it's hidden from all these images and stark contrasts like when Jesus would talk about the lake of fire and the day of trouble and everybody else would say, hey, or Jesus came from them also when he talked about unless, now think about this, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot walk with me. Guess what that was? He was drawing from apocalyptic uh, phrasing and literature. And the effect of that was people walked away. Now, is there anybody here that believes that when we just had communion a few minutes ago, that that was literally Jesus on the table? No. Remember that. Theologians believe that the reason uh, that, that it was, so this is the two genres, a Jewish apocalyptic literature and also Roman Greco theater style writing. In fact, Theologians believe this is the reason why at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we just read this, it instructs us to read it out loud. Blessed is the man who reads this out loud in communion. Why? Because you read a play out loud. It is as if you are going to read a script for a theatric production, a script complete with drama, tragedy, comedy, and song. And in this way, we find Jesus, the lamb, conquering the beast, which is Rome. Let me just tell you very clearly, every time you find the beast in the book of Revelation, it is a reference to Rome. When reading this inspired and prophetic play, we must remember everything is symbolic. This is the genre of writing used by John. Jewish, apo Jewish apocalyptic literature is always filled with very eye-catching symbols and images that are symbolic of nature. So before we go any further, let's look at, at um, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm going to try to pull maybe a passage out of this to give you an example so that you don't totally think I've lost my mind before we go further. So Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 says that there's this scene happening of John in heaven. John stands before the one who holds the scroll, and it's announced to him that no one is worthy in heaven or on the earth to open the scroll. Now, interestingly enough, when this happens, John falls on his face and begins to cry out and weep uncontrollably because this seals what's inside of the, uh, the scroll is, is something that God wants to do in the earth, but nobody's worthy to release. So, what you find is that the Lamb comes and is worthy. And then immediately following this, now remember what I just told you, it's full of drama, comedy, song. You find all of that in this passage. So the next thing that happens is after the Lamb comes and, and opens the scroll, breaks the seals, opens the scroll, and you see that all of the saints and the elders begin to do what? Sing aloud. Guess what? Part of Revelation is a musical. Find me another book in the Bible where people break into song right in the middle. 
it doesn't exist because this is the only book written in this specific way, which is one reason why they thought we probably need not only include this in the Bible because nobody's going to understand that it's written in this way. They're going to try to read it like they read the rest of the Bible, and that was never how it did nor intended. The only consistent way to interpret Revelation is to understand that everything is full of symbols, but these are not empty symbols. I'd like to point out something that's really important. So in the passage we just looked at in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, notice that there is this, this cry given that none is worthy to loose the seal and to read the scroll. And notice that John falls and begins to weep uncontrollably. However, they point to him and they say, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. But as John turns around, he doesn't see a lion, but what does he see? A lamb. Now, before you get all holy about this, what would you do if we went outside and we're just standing there, you know, we're looking at the sunset, I don't know if it's still raining, but we're standing out there and we're in the parking lot, we're looking at the sun, sunset and, and we look over and there's cattle there and, and it's uh, Bill that he's a good judge of that, he usually gets me, but he looks over there and says, look, a lion! And, and everybody looks over and there's this little baby calf that's walking through the field. We'd all laugh, wouldn't we? Bill, what's wrong with you? You freaked us all out. That's what this scene is. It's coming. Can you describe to me any other thing it could be than to describe Rome? It is the image of war. It is the image of power. It is the image of empire and of um, imperialistic reign being defeated by a little lamb. What is the picture here? The picture is that Jesus didn't come to wage a war. The picture is that the beast is overtaken by a little lamb. So if you say to me that when you read this and you see that Jesus is defined as a little lamb, and oh, by the way, do you realize that in the entire book of Revelation, how many people have heard that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah? How many people? Has anybody ever heard of it? You all have, yeah. And I'm not saying he's not. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and the, the symbol of the tribe of Judah is a, is a lion. That's, there's, that's clear. But do you realize that at no point in the entire book of Revelation is a lion seen? Ever. 28 times Jesus is seen as an animal, and in 28 times, it's a lamb. So even the idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed is not in any way supposed to tell us that Jesus is a lion. I'm not saying he's not a lion. I'm not saying you can't be viewed that way. Of course, he, there are elements of value to that view. But the way he's always seen, even when he's presented as, look, the lion is here to prevail. He's a little lamb. That's the point. So here's, here's where I'm going with this. Everything in Revelation is central. So if you say, yes, of course, I believe that Jesus, so let, uh, maybe I should start with this. Do you believe that Jesus as the lamb in Revelation when he goes to speak says that? We would all agree no, right? I, we, I, if we don't, then I, we should just stop with the rest of the notes and we'll talk for a bit. 
okay? So we can all agree that when Jesus, as the lamb in Revelation, speaks the 28 times he's seen as lamb, he doesn't, when he goes to speak, doesn't say, bow, okay? So if we can agree that Jesus is, as a seven-eyed, seven-horned lamb, as a symbol, and I certainly hope so, because if not, when I get to heaven, I'm walking around as a seven-eyed, seven-horned lamb. That's going to be weird. Just being honest. So if we can all agree that that is symbol, you say, well, of course that's symbol. But when you describe Jesus riding a flying white horse through the sky with a sword shooting out of his mouth, if literal, I need you to explain your system. If you're telling me that Jesus as a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, oh, no, 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 that's not literal. That's symbolic. But then chapters later, when he comes shooting through the sky, let's just be real honest here. Shooting through the sky on a flying white pegasus. When he opens his mouth, a sword that would make Crocodile Dundee blush comes out. And we go, that's how he's coming to get us. Are you serious right now? Please tell me your system. It's just that simple. Tell me your system. Because what I was taught in, um, in, in school when I began to first study the Bible is we would develop what's called a hermeneutic. Some of you have heard this term. A hermeneutic is a lens wherewith you look at things. So you would establish, establish what is the hermeneutic towards this. So it's the way that you establish and translate things. So if you believe that the lamb is figurative, but the flying white horse is literal, please give me your hermeneutic. So what is it? The idea. If we look and say that Jesus is coming back to wage a war at the battle of Armageddon, and that's literal, but the sword that's described in that same passage is coming out of his mouth to wage the war and kill two million people is symbolic, then I say again, please tell me what is your system. So when you look at him as the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns that is able to reach a sword, John is seeing a very combative picture of Mephibosheth. Is the quintessential war horse. It's the beast that's able to overturn entire empires and is defeated and overcome by the lamb. The only consistent way to interpret Revelation is to understand that everything is full of symbols, but these are not empty symbols. They're powerful symbols that point to very deep and true realities. So from the river of blood that comes up to the horse's bridle and runs for 200 miles, remember that one? To the tree of life bearing fruit in every season. These are important to see clearly. Both the battle of Armageddon and the descending of New Jerusalem aren't symbols, but they're true symbols. They're real symbols. These are realities. Simply put, if you follow the beast, you end up in Armageddon, and if you follow the lamb, you end up in New Jerusalem. 
this is why, if you follow the beast, empire, war, greed, power, ego, lust, you end up in Armageddon. If you follow the Lamb, you end up in New Jerusalem. Another way of looking at Revelation is that it is an extremely elaborate political cartoon. And by the way, we'll get back to that in just a moment. We are familiar with this today. It is an extremely elaborate political cartoon. In the newspaper or online, we see these things all the time. A political cartoon is a cartoon with a political message communicated in symbol. But the whole thing about the cartoon is you have to understand the symbol. So, Eli, give us a symbol. Do I need to explain to you what's happening in this? You've got, just to be clear, for the people watching on podcast, we're now looking at a picture of an elephant and a donkey in, in outfits and sneakers wearing shirts that point at each other and say, blame him. Let's look at the second one. How about this one? We're now looking at a donkey and an elephant wearing boxing gloves. In our culture, we see these things all the time. Now, I would argue that it's a little weird that you've got the elephant on the left and the donkey on the right. That is a little odd. Clearly, they want to get there and you need to get stuff right. You need to put that snowflake over on the left. But what you find is we look at this and go, oh, I know exactly what this is. This represents our political parties, and this represents the fact that they're always fighting, and they're both a little bruised up, and they clearly don't care for one another. And you've got one that's wearing the stars and one that's wearing the stripes, which symbolize that they're always fighting over what it means to be patriotic and what it means to love their country. We get it, don't we? However, I'd like to ask you a question. When we look at the idea behind uh, what it might mean for us to have political symbols, this requires no explanation. But imagine 2,000 years from now, someone finds this picture, and they're called upon to interpret it. And yay, a great elephant rose up, and he put on his boxing gloves, and thus saith God, he overtakes the donkey. It's not going to make any sense, is it? 2,000 years from now, this will seem like lunacy. Or it'll be new eschatology, depending on how you look at it. Thank you, Eli. So one of the things you have to understand is this is one of our greatest challenges when interpreting the book of Revelation. Because the symbols that had currency during the geopolitical scheme of Greco-Roman world scheme, or uh, in the greco Roman and Greco first century world, excuse me, are 2,000 years removed from us. So we don't understand the symbols. So because we don't understand the symbols and because we have a time, guys like Hal Lindsey came along and said the beast is a computer that is now completely outdated and you could overrun with the first version of a Commodore 64. But that's the thing that's going to issue in the new world order. Here's another example that some of you might know. How many are familiar with the song American Pie by Donald Trump? Okay? Great song, right? Most of us know the chorus. Bye, 
sons and heirs of Christ, right? How many know the verses? Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. So let me read to you one of the verses. When the jester sang for the king, king, a cove he borrowed from Dame Jean, and a voice that came down from Lord Moon. Oh, and while the king was looking down, the jester's soul sang sound. The courtroom was a drone of no word of mine. If you don't know what he's talking about, that sounds like gibberish, doesn't it? And what in the world does it have to do with bye-bye and Mr. Moon? Because the song is speaking of Elvis, Bob Dylan, and the segue from the rock and roll of the 50s and 60s to the folk rebellion, or uh, excuse me, of the 50s to the folk rebellion of the 60s and ultimately 70s. Now think about it with that way. Bob Dylan is the jester. When the jester sang for the king, king, with a cove he borrowed from Dame Jean. While the kitty was looking down, the jester's soul had sung. It's talking about real things, but what if you don't understand the symbol or the meaning? Come on, here's another verse. And the three men I admire most, I love this one, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast for Dogeen's Dash. What he's describing is the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, and Ricky Valens. Yeah, Ricky Valens. So the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is not literal. But if you don't know that, you miss the point. If you don't understand that, there's no way it will make any sense. Perhaps, though, the most important way to look at Revelation is that it's a prophetic critique of the Roman civil religion. Civil religion is a worship that becomes a religion of state where nationalism and religion meld together to serve the power-hungry system of control. Where government tells God to do its work. Civil religion is a worship that becomes a religion of state where nationalism and religion meld together to serve the power-hungry system of control. Another way to identify this is religious patriotism. Not simple love of country or pride of place, responsible citizenship even, but patriotism that takes on a religious aura to it. This is what John is critiquing. But the challenge is, in any instance of civil religion, it is hidden behind symbols and myths and monuments treated with religious reverence. We don't have any of those in this text, do we? It is masked deep within party lines and the power that is wielded when you begin to convey that God is on the side of a political party or stance. Bob Dylan has a song that says, With God on my side, I can wage war wherever death comes. I must mention here that this is idolatry, plain and simple. John goes to the extreme to point this out. We find that religious patriotism is a specially solemn for empires, which, of course, Rome is the quintessential example of this. An empire is a rich, powerful nation that believes it has a divine right to rule other nations in a manifest destiny to shape history according to their wishes. An empire, think about this with me, has power. 
is a rich and powerful insight that believes it has a divine right to impose itself upon human beings and remains ever destined to bring about said by one of my favorite presidents that America is at the Lord's table. That is amazing. Jesus Christ is the Lord's table. They don't eat him up. We do. So this is what John begins to challenge. And in fact, you find this in always with imperial or empire-like structures, that there's a bend towards this. The Bible continually comes back against this. You find this throughout all of the Bible. It is absolutely God's doing to undo civil religion bound to empire. And you find this through the prophets of the Old Testament and the New. Challenging claims of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Rome. Revelation is the apex of this tradition of empire critique that began with Moses and is carried on by many other biblical prophets and reaches a climax with John the Revelator. So a few examples of this critique. As an example, Rome had a goddess that was the personification of the Roman Empire. Her name was Roma. This goddess was always depicted in Rome as a dignified, chaste, elegant woman. John decides to take this on in vivid depiction. In Revelation 13 and 17, he portrays her as a drunken, violent harlot that's drunk with the blood of the saints. Any other wedding rules pastors you could work? Just to give you a reference for the offense It would be as if somebody took the Statue of Liberty and portrayed her as a drunken prostitute. Can you imagine the vitriol that would would cause in the church? That's what John does with their image of Roman elegance, beauty, and he portrays her as this violent, drunken whore. strongest critique of Roman civil religion by John is emperor worship. The Romans didn't worship living people, but what would happen is that there was an empire that, uh, emperor excuse me, that was particularly loved by the people. After he died, they would convene a council where the Roman senate, senate excuse me, would vote to decree a, a Caesar divination, meaning they were now regarded as a god and were sanctioned to be worshipped. Their images, now this is interesting, their images were then put on currency. So they would take their faces and put them on currency and distribute them throughout the entire empire, which was the mass media of their day. They didn't have CNN, Fox, MSNBC, NPR, BBC, or C-SPAN. What they had was money. So to tell people what they believed, they would stamp it and imprint it on their money because that money had to be used throughout the entire empire. And what they would couple that with is they would put the picture of the, the empire, or excuse me, emperor throughout the empire and 
they would couple that on the money with divine titles. Receive these ringing bells. Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Son of God, or Savior of the World. These were the divine titles given to emperors who had passed and were being given God status. It was for this reason that the New Testament church was so adamant that Jesus was truly King and Lord of Lords. Because what they were saying is, Christians were so adamant about this because these were names attributed to empires. They were so distinguishing in doing so that they belonged to another kingdom and were citizens of the heavenly realm that was being built here on earth. Strangely, empire worship was most popular in the reaches of Rome's kingdom. Specifically, historians have established that its popularity plateaued in an eastern providence in Asia Minor. Today we call it Turkey. Religious patriotism always seems to take root more easily in a providence, far from the realities of the context. There is probably nobody in our country more discontented with our government than people who live in Washington, D.C. Fair? Why? Because they feel, they live it, they experience it in tangible sense. We only get whatever type of news media filter this makes sense. This has always been the way it was. So you don't find people in Rome as committed to worshiping emperors as gods because they have seen these things. They have felt the immediate ramifications of their decisions. But oftentimes there will be decisions that would happen in Rome that wouldn't impact the other uh, Far Eastern communities and provinces for years. So they would start first in these areas, and that's where it began to take root. In fact, it was at the heightened, heightened degree of worship in Asia Minor, just where the seven churches that John writes to at the beginning of Revelation are, Asia Minor. So when he writes to Ephesians, and when he writes to Pergamum, and when he writes to Smyrna, and when he writes to Thyatira, when he does all of this, he's literally addressing real places because myth takes hold at a distance. When he writes, ah, we don't have time to get into this, but when he writes to Pergamum and says, I know where you are, the place where Satan's throne is. Has that ever bothered anybody? It's bothered me. Uh, maybe it was uh, you are far more spiritual than I am, no doubt. But it's bothered me. Because I thought, how do I know that? You know, I, 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 and I know we would go down the line of like there's spiritual strongholds. I get all of that. But Satan's throne? I'm pretty sure I would need that. Like if that's what I'm told in a letter. Somebody's like, hey, I know where you are in Coatesville, where Satan's throne is. I'm like, well, pack it up, boys. We're heading west. You know, I, whatever. Has that ever bothered you? 
Or do we realize that still to this day, when you study, you can actually find that at Pergamum, there was a place that was one of the major centers of emperor worship. There are pictures and remnants of these temples still today. So when John wrote, I know where you are, was still complaining, he's still critiquing Roman civil worship. John doesn't come out and mention the name Rome, much like the parts that we discussed earlier. But at the time, the name was clear. Here's another one for you. Do you realize that the number 666, it is agreed upon by every scholar and theologian who's worked their metal and their blood in this tongue that that was the number of Nero. And I'm not using some weird math system where you, because I've heard it all. Believe me, I've heard it all. In fact, 666 was first used by, um, it, when it, as early as we can find it, around 350 AD, 666 was first used to be attributed to someone or a group of people. And what happened is Constantine, maybe you've heard of him, Constantine really had an issue with Muslims. Like he wanted to annihilate them from the face of the planet. So what he came up with was a really unique math system where he took uh, um, Muhammad's birthday. He took the prophet Muhammad's birthday, added some numbers to it, and said that his name equaled 666. And this is why it was okay to annihilate them from the face of the planet. So they waged a little war, maybe you've heard of it, called the Crusades. Which to me, at this time, is still the biggest black mark, black mark and blight upon our faith in our history. Where entire people groups, villages, cities were wiped out, all because of some fancy name that we could use to weaponize the gospel against others. It is firmly, it is fact. In fact, take it to the bank. When you go to the bank tomorrow morning, walk in and say, hey, did you know the 666 is Caesar Nero? Take it to the bank. I don't care. The reality is it's fact. 666 is the number of Nero. He couldn't say it clearly, but that's what he meant. And now we have all kinds of science that means I had somebody tell me the other day, this is really different. And the funny part about this was the person thought they really came up with something good. But he was like, well, what I believe, and I know this is new, you probably haven't heard this, is that 666 is the Pope. Well, like, we've been saying that since, like, 500. <laughs> like, that's been a thing for a while. And so he goes through and says, because, did you know the Pope's hat says Son of God on it? Well, all I had to do, while we're sitting at the table, I was like, really? Typed into Google, does the Pope's hat say Son of God? Myth, 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 false, 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 false. Down the line. For 500 years, people have been saying this. For 500 years, it's been clearly not the case because guess what? There is no Pope's hat. They pick whatever hat they want to wear. And it doesn't magically appear on them as soon as it hits their head. Son of God. Gets emblazoned, you know. Hasn't that ever messed with you? That like, if the Pope is the Antichrist, because he has been, all throughout my life, at various points, the Pope was the Antichrist. What I always wondered is, when you get sworn in as Pope, do you just assume the responsibility? Like, oh, and just in case, if the rapture happens, I know that I'm the Antichrist now. Because there's been more than one. Like, there's been lots and lots and lots of Popes. So do you just, does that just come with it? Is that in small print? Is that in the contract? Like, and if Jesus comes back, you know, I, 
flying through the air. I'm now the Antichrist. And then the Antichrist gets up to you guys at the end. The Antichrist probably appears and tells us about the word Antichrist never appeared in the entire book of Revelation. The only place he mentions it is the other John in the epistle where he calls it the spirit of Antichrist. It's never been a person. It will never be a person. Think about this picture painted by John the Divine. He starts off with the book clarifying that this book is about the revelation of Jesus. That's the basics. That's why it's not Revelation Revelation. Again, have you ever heard people say that? You know, I like to study the book of Revelation. It's not plural. You want to know why? Because it's about one thing. Jesus identifies this in Revelation 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's only one revelation. Him. This is the revelation of Jesus as Lord. The book is not intended to be a revelation of events that would happen nearly 2,000 years later. Frankly, what would be the point of that? What would be the point? Honestly, if you are the Christians that are alive at the time of, excuse me, John the Divine, do you realize at the time of John the Divine, there was only eight to 9,000 Christians estimated in the entire world? Pretty small group. That's less than the population of Greencastle in the entire world. So what would be the point of that and thinking about this letter that says things that are going to happen two millennia later? John begins the first part of Revelation describing what worship looks like. So after we get through the letters to the churches of 2, 3, and 4, he begins to describe, starting in verse 5, in this incredible story, what worship really looks like. Why does this matter? Simply because worship produces fidelity. Right worship produces right society. Right worship always leads to right living. It's been the message of the Bible since the beginning. Worship God, love God, and the second commandment is like unto the first, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. that they're under the threat, as he's writing to these seven churches, under the threat of religious nationalism and patriotism and power and greed and violence to become this empire. And he says, look, Jesus is what we worship. Then he describes what it looks like. He understands that this comes with a cost and a price, that he's daily living while he's writing this exile to an isle called Patmos, but this is why he repeatedly refers to Jesus as the one who's faithful and true. Repeatedly, Jesus identifies himself as faithful and true, faithful and true. Why? Because he's saying, guys, there's a cost. You want to live in this society? There's a cost. You want to check out for materialism? There's a cost. You want to pass out from civil religion? There's a cost. He starts with the introduction of Jesus as Lord, then gives us personal messages to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Then in chapter 4, we see this incredible scene of worship that would make the Roman worship in the pantheon seem cheap and pale in comparison. 
he describes to his worship in heaven because he's trying to show as a difference how anemic the God worship in Rome really was. He's trying to describe how anemic emperor worship is in comparison to the worship of the one true king. So he describes in incredible detail all of these things happening. Then in ver- or excuse me, chapter 5, we begin to see drama ensue. The tour of heaven really begins. The scrolls unfolded, and he reads uncontrollably because no one is worthy to proclaim what is in the scroll, which is ultimately that the world can be saved. I would like to suggest to you that the scroll in chapter 5 that no one is worthy to read, but that the Lamb is the worthy to read, it doesn't tell us what it says. If you read chapter 5 of Revelation, it never says what the scroll says. It just says that when he reads it, everybody falls and worships and cries, holy, holy. I would like to suggest to you that chapter 11 tells us what the scroll says. The theme of the scroll found in chapter 5 is read in verse 11, which is the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, Jesus. That's the message of the scroll. His kingdom come is the message of the scroll. On earth as it is in heaven is the message of the scroll. So let's remember that while we love the idea of this Jesus as a lion, specifically the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's never seen as a lion in all of Revelation. He's always seen as a lamb, and not just a lamb, but a little lamb, and not just a little lamb, but a slain or slaughtered lamb. That is the picture of Jesus that John paints for us, the picture he paints of our Lord, not as bringing violent judgment to the earth. Seriously, this is really absolutely difficult. The picture John paints is not of Jesus bringing violent judgment to sin, but of a little slain lamb that has been slaughtered. It's literally, I don't want to be nasty, but when they describe it, the language and even the pictures that they're painting of it at the time would be of a lamb, a little lamb sitting there with its throat split open and blood down the seven corner ribs. That's when you slaughter a lamb. Yet he's a lamb. A lamb who's been slain and yet lives. That's the picture of John, or of Jesus as king of heaven. And that little lamb does not come back. In fact, do you want to know something really weird? You know that whole valley of Armageddon that's only mentioned one time in the entire Bible? One time. We'll talk about where it is next week. In fact, I've got some pictures of it. So if you want to see pictures of Armageddon, come to church next Thursday. There's it. There's it. We're doing it just like they do it on CBS. We're, we're trying to get you to watch the next episode, as uh, Dr. Zoe would say. So when you look at the idea of what this slain lamb is, do you realize that everybody does gather for a massive battle in Revel- at the end of Revelation, but there's never a battle? You see Jesus appear on a white horse, his garments drenched in blood. Who's going to drench him? (laughs) We assume a battle ensues. There's never a battle. Why? Because the only weapon he uses is his word. That's the sword coming out of his mouth. His word. What does the Bible say his word does to us? Jesus said, my word refines you. In fact, he already, he says to them in John 15, you've already become clean by my what? 
for the word has always used to restore where harm comes. Jesus doesn't come to destroy, but Jesus comes to restore. He never kills anybody. He restores. We assume he shows up to destroy. We assume. And have you ever thought of how ludicrous it might be that Jesus spends the entire Bible telling, he spends the entire Bible disarming people. Telling them if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Telling them in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes their sword and says, do not do this. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. He spends his entire life being nonviolent and preaching nonviolence and peace. But yet we think when he comes back, he comes and wipes out millions of people. So many people that 200 200 miles worth of blood rivers running. So did Jesus come as Gandhi in the Gospels and Dirty Harry in Revelation? Or really ticked off Dirty Harry? Two million people took off. But two, actually, I think it's 200 million people. So I'd like to look with you at the, at the, uh, with the end of Revelation. The end of Revelation in Revelation 22. I have always had an issue with the idea. How many times have, have you all heard the language, the spirit and the bride say, And we've said, you know, we cry, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Has anybody ever had some trepidation about that? Because I have. Because what my trepidation has been is, I want you to come. But if everything else I've been taught is true, the cost of that is millions and millions or maybe billions of people who are going to be judged and destroyed as a result of your coming. It would be like it would be like saying you being the good kid and your sibling is maybe the the bad kid and they did a bunch of bad stuff that day you did all your chores they did all the good stuff and you can't wait until mom and dad get home because they're going to praise you but you also know they're going to beat your sibling be a little conflicted wouldn't you that's the picture I've always struggled with in Revelation and if I can be honest that's been the picture of Jesus coming back has always bothered me and so when you hear things about you know, battle in the Middle East. Do you know how many Christians are daily praying for World War III? Daily. Do you want to know why? Because they feel like World War III is what's going to usher in the rapture. So for Jesus to come back, we have to have Armageddon. Because if you read it wrong, what you read is Armageddon happens where everybody gets nuked and killed. Haven't you, how many times have you heard ludicrous teaching? Like the fact that the two dead guys are laying in the middle of a city and the whole world watches. And we've been taught that the time has grown close because now we have 24-hour news. So the whole world can see it. We have social media. It's going to be live. Facebook Live is going to be these two martyred prophets. Guess what? They already died. Their names were Peter and Paul. So hasn't it ever bothered you to think, this is how it's all going to be. This is how we know it's the end. There's going to be earthquakes. We see another earthquake, and we get excited. And we go, that means one day closer, Jesus is coming back. All the things are falling into place. Those dominoes are falling. Come, Lord Jesus. Because that's how I read the Bible in Revelation. So from the vantage point of the great victory of Jesus, who slays the beast with his empire, with his wrong worship, with his greed, with his lust, with all that stuff. Never people, but systems. Jesus didn't come to overthrow people. Jesus came to overthrow systems. Jesus only ever showed himself short with systems, never with people. 
So Jesus, at the end of the book of Revelation, this is the end of the book. This is our prophetic culmination. Then the angel showed me the river of life flowing with water, clear as crystal, continuously pouring out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river was flowing in the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river was the tree of life with the 12 kinds of ripe fruit according to each month of the year. The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations, and every curse will be broken. Every curse will be broken and no longer exist. Would that include the curse of death that comes for those that we might have considered others? In fact, what was it literally we said Jesus came to free us from what? Curse. Every curse broken by one or another of these people. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His loving servants will serve him. They will constantly see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will never need the light of the sun or lamp because the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign as kings forever. Amen. That's why we can cry, come Lord Jesus, because the coming of the Lord is not a dreadful day for others and a day of rejoicing for me. The day of the Lord is a day of rejoicing for all. with the kings and nations. Those are the people who always live with the kings and oppose the saints. And it says that from that time, the saints gather in the new Jerusalem, the city of God, that is heaven, that has come to earth. And it says the gates of the city will never be shut. The last scene of the book of Revelation is us welcoming in the people who've been inside for all of history.
um, not quite as good as the first one. The third book is a book called Purgation Never Be Said by one of my favorite living theologians. His name is Brad Gerlbach. He's a Canadian theologian. And it used to be a charismatic Pentecostal and converted to Eastern Orthodox. He's now a priest in Canada. Um, but it's an incredible book, Purgation Never Be Said. The fourth book that I think touches some of the things that we talked about, but is maybe um, also gets into um, kind of just what the what the rapture, what the resurrection really looks like, is the book Surprised by Hope by um, the great theologian N.T. Wright. Honestly, I think every single Christian needs to read Surprised by Hope. It changed my theology about all of that, maybe more than any other book. Um, most of these books are written by theologians, so they're maybe not the easiest reads. I personally believe that reading Revelation responsibly is an easy enough read for somebody who's just kind of going in and out, wanting to get hung up in the muck of theology. Okay? So, there's that for you. All right. So, um, we're going to take a few minutes and do questions. Um, if you would like, if you don't have any questions, then I'm just going to believe that I preached it so well that there's nothing more to be said. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.